KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. My name is Matt Leon. Technology companies have gotten big. Companies like Facebook, Twitter, some of the most recognizable names in corporate America. But they also have been surrounded by their share of controversy. And there have been many calls for government regulation for places like Facebook and Twitter. But what does that mean? Is it realistic? Is it already happening in a way? We have lots of questions. And to get some answers, we reached out to Brett Frischman. He is the Charles Widger Endowed University Professor in Law, Business, and economics at Villanova University. Really fascinating conversation. Check it out. So the place I'd like to start is we hear this conversation framed whether we should regulate big tech. And in talking to you prior to the interview, uh, you don't like the idea of calling it big tech. Kind of take us uh, (laughs) to dig into this a little bit. Right. So, I mean, (laughs) the first thing when people say, you know, we got to regulate big tech, my first thought is what do you, what exactly are you talking about i mean what do you mean by big what do you mean by tech i mean uh what does it even mean i mean is uh is honda big tech is fitbit big tech is wikipedia big tech big tech is cnn fox news are they big tech epic games is in this big fight with google and uh apple is epic game i mean their big tech is is at is epic games big tech all of these and so many more companies are tech companies. The big is often just a buzzword until you give me a, a metric. Tell me what you're measuring, why, in what market or social context. It's almost like, you know, talking about big tech is like talking about regulating big energy. I mean, you can get more specific and talk about big oil or big coal or big pharma, in which case I sort of get what you're talking about. But again, it's still... It's still, you, you know, calling and talking about big tech probably obscures more than it reveals. And it's you know, usually just political or a sensational buzzword. So I think, you know, I, I usually want to push towards what kind of technology uh, are you talking about? What's the exact dilemma or social dilemma that's in need of regulation if you're going to be talking about regulation? And if we're talking about digital network technologies, we can kind of break it down in a bunch of different ways. So I think when I think about this, I think of the world of Facebook, Twitter, your social networks that I think it seems uh, a lot of people point to. So let's focus on on that first, because uh, I think that's where you see a lot of people saying that maybe there needs to be a shorter leash and they've been self-regulating and a lot of people think it hasn't worked. Uh, is that something you foresee happening in the in the near or distant future the government stepping in and and having a role in in these social networks yes uh and the the government sort of always has a role and always always has had a role uh in even just in structuring what the market looks like for these companies the first thing is why are we talking about social media in particular why are you talking about facebook and twitter um if what we're talking about in the short term is like the current ranting about social media bias by the current occupant of the White House on Twitter, it's largely political theater. So you might think we can ignore it as mere political theater, but I think that's difficult to do because the NTIA, the FCC, industry, we can't, can't really ignore it. Um, you know, or, or if we're talking about TikTok and like the, re- the reactions to TikTok as a, as a tech platform, again, sort of 
we're forced currently last couple of years, last year, especially we're forced to suddenly confront like these social media technologies and what regulation might look like. And so in one way or the other, it seems like we're going to be dealing with this. I tend to want to step back from reactionary regulate, like regulating in reaction to a personal or like immediate political fight. And I think, you know, you're right. We were talking about this before we went on air that there's, there has been for over a decade, really longer than a decade, uh, a discussion about whether, and if so, how, and also I should say who should regulate social media companies. I mean, and if we're talking, I mean, you want to distinguish between things like social media um, and uh, search, right? Search engines, uh, which are often also grouped in the discussion of, of, of big tech. So to answer your question, I think, you know, yes, there, there, is, there is a regulatory apparatus in place. Um, one of the debates that people talk about uh, is sort of um, in, in currently in terms of social media and Twitter is this sort of content moderation. To what degree should Facebook or Twitter or any other social media company exercise any kind of editorial or other kinds of control over the con- moderating content that their users make available on their platforms, as opposed to the content that they themselves originate. Um, and you know that can be the way in which they exercise that kind of control can be blocking it altogether, taking stuff down. For example, let's move out. If you move outside of like politically contentious speech and things, you move into like copyright infringement, right? We, there's under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, there's a notice and takedown system in place where if you're a copyright owner and your and your song or your video or your copyrighted content is posted by some user of one of these platforms on the platform, you can file a notice and go through a process and there's sort of a notice and takedown, right? And there's an, there's an elaborate legal procedure from the Digital Millennium Copyright Act back in 1998, right? And that's worked reasonably well, though not perfectly, but reasonably well. And that's up for discussion and debate as well. But that's a form of regulating these social media and other platforms or intermediaries of certain kinds. It, uh, search also has a notice and takedown regulatory regime in place for copyright infringement. So if a certain kind of bad act, copyright infringement takes place, there's sort of this regime for regulating and there's a notice and takedown. For other kinds of things, it could be misleading speech or hate speech or bullying content messages on a platform largely subject to self-regulation by the platform owner, by the, the, the social media company. And that is the reason it's largely self-regulation is because of, at least in the United States, two things. Uh, the First Amendment, coupled with the Communications Decency Act, Section 230. And we can kind of get, if you want, we can go into a discussion of what that means. But basically what that has meant for these platforms that host the speech or content of others, right? Their users, Facebook users, Twitter users post content on their platform. And then they, the platform makes it available to the public and other users is that they can regulate that content in good faith. They can remove and exercise editorial discretion with regard to objectionable content of certain kinds. It's sort of specified in the statute. And if they're, as long as they're doing that in good faith, they're not held liable for those kinds of removal decisions. And for the most part, they're not deemed to be 
held equivalent to the speaker or the publisher of the content that, that their users post. So suppose, Matt, you post something about me and it's defamatory. You lie and say that, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, know. You can, don't say it on the air right now, but whatever. <laughs> you say something about me that's false with leading harms my reputation. It's up on, you, you put it on, so, on Twitter or on social media and you know, it's harmful to me. I can, if I know you did it, I can sue you directly for defamation, right? But can I hold Facebook or Twitter or whatever the platform is liable for the, the harmful content you posted about me on their platform? And the CDA Section 230 basically says no. You, I, Facebook or Twitter or whatever the company is, they're not the publisher or the speaker when they're, when they're basically just distributing your defamatory speech. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that is an existing regulate. We have an existing regulatory regime that largely by design shoves the regulate, you know, the decision about how to regulate the details of regulating and policing content on the platforms to the platforms themselves. Prior to the Communications Decency Act, there's uh, two famous cases, the, the Cubby case and then the Stratton Oakmont case, which are these two earlier cases that applied common, like the existing common law dealing with defamation. And in those cases, the question was whether you would hold the intermediary, the the platform liable for the defamatory speech. And the possibility of being held liable for defamatory speech created this threat that like, I'm just not going to police, I'm not going to police anything because there's too much content for me to be able to assess. I can't evaluate all the stuff on my platform. And so I'm better off not doing anything, and says the first case. And then in the, in, the, in the subsequent case, it was Prodigy, was actually trying to provide a family-friendly environment on their platform. And so they're trying to do the right thing in a sense, trying to – they're held liable. They're held to be the equivalent of the publisher or the speaker in that case. And so because they're held liable, Congress steps in in the, in the, in the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and says, look, we want to encourage platforms to – do their best, right? We want to have a market of competing platforms. The theory was you're going to have a bunch of different competing platforms offering different levels of sort of intermediation, right? They're, they're, and they're going to compete with each other. You want a family-friendly platform? You might go to number you know, A, platform A. You want one that's like free and robust and they're not touching anybody's speech. They're like completely hands-off. You might go to B. And then you can have a whole market of different platforms, with different sets of regulatory regimes that that's all self-regulation and communications decency act section 230 was a largely about enabling that market to work that way. So it gave the platforms this self-regulatory authority and the sort of freedom to do so without the threat of being held liable, as long as they're exercising good faith when they do decide to sort of moderate. Now that competitive market of platforms, people debate whether it actually exists, right? Because of network effects, there's a limited number of social media the numbers of people on the dominant sets of social media platforms calls into question whether there really are as much, you know, whether that theoretical idea of competing platforms that all have different levels of moderation uh, are really there. How about just the idea that these, these companies, your Apple, your Amazon, your Facebook, they've just gotten so big and you can see a day where everything falls under the the tent of one of these four or five giant tech companies. Is 
they're a concern from that standpoint, and I don't know if it's if it's antitrust or whatever, but they're just so big and it could it could stifle a lot of things. Well, yeah, that's this is why when we were talking at the very beginning, I said, well, what, when you say big tech, what do you mean? Bigness measured in terms of market share? If that's what we're talking about, what market uh, in particular? Or big, is bigness about the net value of the company and how much how much resources it commands? Is it power? Power, economic power, or is it political power, or both? I think on all those, the companies you just mentioned all exhibit incredible amount of power, and they're all big on many different metrics. So it makes sense that those are, those are often the, 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 the set of companies. And there are some others we might add to the mix. And that is, a, I mean, there absolutely is a concern that there's a concentration of power in a smaller number of very large companies that have leveraged the internet and other digital network technologies and large, incredibly large stores of data to gain market share, to gain political and economic power in a variety of different settings. And they, they, the kind of power that's most interesting, perhaps, is how much they shape each of, each of our lives. Like how much the subtle exercise of power, how much, how much like, there aren't many options that it, sometimes to switch. Now, you could say, I mean, this is, it's interesting because this, this kind of concern about economic and political power and how it sort of translates into power over what you and I experience every day is similar to the kind of debate that ha- has happened in, you know, other industries related to the internet, like the infrastructure industries too, right? You can think about your internet service providers and how many different broadband internet service providers you have access to and how much power those providers have. So we could, you know, some people call for adding them to the, to the mix of the big tech companies that have a lot of power on one hand. On the other hand, a lot of those companies like Comcast and Verizon are quite happy to see the attention shifting away from them. So in the old debates about net neutrality and an open internet, not that they've gone away, by the way, all of those issues still remain important and it's still a big debate and that debate will keep going. Um, I predicted this back in 2012. I said, you know, and other people have too, it's nothing unique about me, but I kept saying, giving talks about net neutrality, like net neutrality style debates will happen at higher layers of the network. So at the applications layer of the network, which is where all these big tech platforms are, but we're also going to see it for smart transportation. We're going to see it for smart electricity distribution. All of the big smart infrastructures that rely on digital networks, digital network technology, data-driven decision-making about who gets to do what and how and on what pricing, um, you're going to face the same set of issues where you've got concentrated power um, in uh, a small number of companies that um, provide the infrastructure we all take for granted until it's too late, or at least until we don't have many options, then we're sort of wondering how can we deal with the fact that we don't have very many options. Uh, you know, one suggestion that you made that I think is, the, is, a, is a good one is, is revitalizing antitrust, like thinking about the role of antitrust. And there are, are a number of people, uh, and there's even sort of a movement within antitrust sort of pushing for antitrust to be a more effective tool for Break, you know, you could think about breaking up big companies. You can think about structural separation. You could think about, there's a doctrine. I wrote an article in the Antitrust Law Journal back in 2008. And just last night on a different Zoom call, we started, we, we were talking about it. It's called revitalizing essential facilities, which is a basically, an art, it's a doctrine in antitrust law that is largely dead, to be honest, to be frank. I wish it wasn't. That's why I said we should revitalize it back then. But it's largely dead in the United States. 
it exists in other countries. Uh, it's a little more active in Europe, for example. But it's basically a, a doctrine and a trust law that recognize that when basic infrastructural facilities that competitors and others rely on, other, and you've got monopoly control of those facilities, that you can have access, non-discriminatory access for competitors. Um, and there's a whole, you know, it's a detailed antitrust thing. But it, that article came up last night in our Zoom conversation in part because there are lots of seemingly essential infrastructure facilities, these, these basic platforms we all rely on. They're essential to what we do every day. They're essential to businesses finding customers and interacting with them. And yet the, it seems often as though um, there's, the, there's not as much competition as we would like there to be. Um, but I think, you know, whether there is, is very market specific. So I think that's the, the trick, the difficult thing in evaluating the role of antitrust is sort of identifying what, what are the specific markets where you see market power and a particular, you know, enough market power in a particular company or, you know, two companies to give rise to these kinds of issues. And that's, uh, that is one of the forms of regulation that we, we need to be considering in this sort of conversation about big tech, although I don't think it's the I don't think it's the only one. I think that you know there's other things like fair and reasonable non-discriminatory licensing of essential intellectual property, like it's called FRAND licensing. Uh, that is one that operates on uh, you know for for example for for shared standards. You can have limits on the size or limits on vertical integration. This is sort of an antitrust thing, but it also could be a regulatory uh, implemented through regulation. One that we haven't really talked about that's essential to all of these businesses, their accumulation of power is data. Privacy and privacy law, privacy regulation is an area that the United States needs to get on the ball with because we've got sort of a hodgepodge of, uh, or a patchwork of sector-specific privacy laws, you know, HIPAA for health law and, you know, uh, you know uh, FERPA for education at the federal level and then a bunch of different state laws. But you know, much of the power of these companies is not the is not the physical infrastructure that they deploy, although in some cases it are the like cloud servers and stuff for Amazon. But it's the data and the algorithms and, and AI and intelligence generating systems that are reliant on and trained on all of the data that they've collected. So that's a whole different, maybe a whole different conversation about regulating big tech may really be about regulating the inputs that allow big tech to emerge and you know stay big. What is the most likely, with everything we've talked about, if we reconnect five years from now, what are some likely things you think we could see happen from a, a government standpoint? Or do you think, for the most part, we will be status quo? There'll be a lot of talk about it. Election cycles will bring it to the, to the forefront. But... When it comes down to it, we'll pretty much be in the same spot we are now. Gosh, that is such a hard prediction to make given the political climate. I wish it wasn't. I wish I could. I mean, so I, I think there are many areas of the digital networked technology world that we're building for ourselves and our kids uh, that require sort of a systematic approach to regulation, which some of it involves federal government, you know, government regulation. Some of it involves states, but we're largely reactionary and piecemeal in terms of the, at least in the current administration, in terms of the approach of it. And Congress is largely ineffectual. You know, the, the president has a, uh, issued a, an executive order and was sort of calling for uh, this, the FCC to have an inquiry about 
interpreting alleged ambiguities in the Communications Decency Act, the provision we were talking about before uh, in Section 230. And, you know, that's what courts do. Courts have interpreted and uh, you know, sort of the, amb- the, the ambiguities in Section 230, but it's reactionary. So this sort of reactionary approach to regulation under the current administration, look, if, if, if it, a lot of what the answer, basically what I'm saying is the answer to your question turns on politics, at least at the federal level. I do think at the, at the state level, privacy law may very well, if it doesn't happen at the federal level, will happen and bubble up through experimentation at the state level. So California is leading the charge, but I had a bunch of students in my law, economics, and technology of privacy course last spring. Um, they did a, they sort of did little micro examinations of, did they pick any random state they choose and look at the privacy legislation that was pending or being considered. And they found lots of really interesting privacy bills all around the country that are sort of being discussed and actively engaged with. So I, I think if it doesn't happen because the federal politics is such a mess, you may very well see some things happening at the state level. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.